So I haven't been to a lot of 10-year-olds' birthday parties. Are they all this mix of uh, kind of sugar high and exhaustion that I'm experiencing right now? Yeah. The exhaustion, um, I have to say, honestly, for me is in part because for the last 48 hours I spent a lot of time staring at the news. And so I just want to say as we get started that I hope we find the places and spaces and people that help us regenerate so that we can rest rather than give up. And I'm also so grateful that Wellsprings is a community that opens doors and that recognizes that the people who come through our doors, it's not where they came from, what country or what religion they practice or what language they speak that makes them good or bad for our community. Thank you. Can I get a noisemaker amen on that one? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Bless you. We all have different noisemakers. That's part of what makes us beautiful, right? (laughs) This week, if you were paying attention to Wellspring's Facebook page or Wellspring's Instagram feed, which some of you might have been, you will have noticed that we put up pictures old pictures from the past 10 years here in our community with the hashtag Wellsprings at 10. And if you missed that this week, I will show you, I think, the best picture of all, the oldest one from actually two years before we started gathering here on Sunday mornings. It's a picture of the steering committee of the Northern Chester County PA New Congregation of the Philadelphia Wilmington Metro Plan. Such a catchy name. Here is uh, that image. And you might recognize that young gentleman right in the middle there who looks like a child in this picture, who's actually, I realize, one year older in that picture than I am now. So I'm incriminating myself, I guess. (laughs) We're all children at heart, I think, if we're here. This picture was part of a packet that I got of old archival stuff from before Wellsprings first worship service. I was gifted a church nerd's dream, honestly, a whole bunch of planning material and outlines and grant proposals and all of this different information about what the people who were here before any of us were here, the people who came from places like Mainline Unitarian Church and other local congregations, people who worked for the district, the Joseph Priestley district of our UUA denomination, and some people from the UUA up in Boston. They didn't really know anything about us because we didn't exist yet, and they didn't really know what they were creating, but they had a hope. They wanted to create something new and different, a new and different expression of our faith tradition that is a couple hundred years old, at least in the U.S. I read this material that dates back to the early 2000s, some of it, four or five years before we even gathered, and I read all about those people's hopes and plans for this spiritual community that we know today. And it is a fascinating thing to read about someone's hopes for you before you were born, before you ever existed. Have any of you ever looked at your baby books and you see the things that your parents noticed, right, the things that they took pictures of that maybe had a little bit more to do with them than with you? Here she is at the piano. You hated the piano. (laughs) Here he is at his first football game. 
Yeah, not an athlete, maybe. Here he is making all the girls swoon. Meh. Who knows if that is true in the end of the day, right? Here they are at their first protest. Some of you may have taken those pictures this past weekend. And there's nothing wrong with those hopes that our parents have for us. It's just that they probably do have more to do with them than they have to do with you. I'll give you an example of this. My father, I remember, wanted me, since I was about six years old, to become a CPA. (laughs) About the opposite of what I do now, right? A certified public accountant. And I remember coming home from preschool or kindergarten. I was in a, you know, Montessori school where we got to learn at our own pace. And I came home with multiplication tables that I've been working on in kindergarten. And my dad was like, yes, math skills. I knew it. And from that day until probably uh, a year into my master's program to become a minister, he would remind me of these skills I had, of this great, stable, secure career path that I could follow. So naturally, I went to a liberal arts college and studied women's studies and psychology and got into nonprofits and social change and healing work, right? Perfect. I fought against that vision that my dad had for me all along the way. I told him that was the last thing I would ever want to do. And now that I'm a little older, I realize how that dream was really about him. My dad never finished college He really wrestled with finding a good, stable, well-paying job. He worried about money. And he ended up, when I was a little kid, working as a paralegal at a tax law firm. His boss was a CPA. His boss, who he came home at least once a week and complained about the fact that he was required to call that man sir. And despite the resentment in his voice, he knew that that was a kind of currency. He knew the stability and the security that his boss enjoyed. And he wanted that for his daughter. How ironic that the thing that I bristled against was really an expression of his love. That, yes, had a lot more to do with him than with me. But it turns out I became the executive minister of a congregation you might have heard of, Wellsprings, and I'm really into the budgeting And I actually am fascinated by it. It's not just about the elegance and the orderliness of the numbers and columns, which I do like also, I admit. I am drawn to talking about money. Money is such a taboo subject in our society. And it determines so much, so much of which is unspoken. And I actually love thinking about money as a spiritual topic thinking about how money matters so much in our lives, in our society, in our world. It matters so much that fathers tell little girls that it's the most important thing. They express their hopes for their little girls' lives by saying, I want you to have enough. Even if it means that you may not follow your dreams or share your gifts or experience joy in your career, this is what's most important for me to give to you. To this day, that fascinates me. So my dad wasn't entirely wrong. 
in a very different way, though, I think, than he expected. We can probably all reflect back on some hope that our parents, our families had for us that was very heartfelt, but didn't quite resonate for us. It's a difficult position to be in sometimes. Maybe there was a deep value in our family that was passed down from some immigrant generation. Maybe there was an older sibling who set up some expectations for who you would be. Maybe it wasn't so much about your family as it was about the world you grew up in and the expectations that were placed on you by some bigger story. The story of what it means to be a guy's guy. To be a good girl. To be a black man. A rich kid. Christian. Whatever it might have been, I think we all know a little bit about what it feels like to have that story, that expectation, that hope, really, laid upon you and knowing that it just didn't quite fit. I think it is in our nature to recognize when we resist these things and to push back against them, and that really can be a good thing. It's a good thing when we assert the truth of our individuality, our uniqueness, that spirit that lives in our lives and moves through us, that says we are special in our own way and we are not just someone else's projection. We have our own spark. And yet we do live our lives in this tension between what we inherit, what other people plan and hope for us, and what is real and true. I know that my experience taught me that there can be not a but, but a yes end here. That maybe we can take some of that raw material because it is here. We have inherited it whether we like it or not. Right? And we can mix that raw material with that freedom in our lives. And that maybe if we're willing to start to look for the good, we can dig a little bit deeper, let go of what does not serve us, but actually find some redemption, maybe, in what stays. I will give you an example in the story of a man that I heard recently who had some really painful inheritances, some really painful stuff that he had to integrate. He's this guy right here. His name's J.J. Peterson. And he, five years ago, was the dean of students at a private Christian college here in America. He was a pastor. He had a Ph.D. in theology. He'd given his whole life not just to the church, but to training and supporting young people to give their lives over to do good work for God. And he had known since he was five years old that he was a gay man. It was a secret he kept his whole life. I heard J.J.'s story on a podcast I listen to sometimes called The Liturgist's Podcast, and it was one of five or six stories that were similar to his, talking about what it's like to grow up with this inheritance, this sense of hope and expectation that other people place on you that are at odds 
with your sexuality or your gender expression. It was incredibly difficult for JJ growing up. He said he went to bed some nights and prayed that he would not wake up the next morning, that God would take him away rather than have to deal with this secret. He told people that there was a prophecy that he'd received, that he wouldn't live past 40, which was, he said, a really convenient excuse for not getting married and having children. But when he was 38, he realized that that prophecy was not coming true. Or that he would make it true himself. When he was admitted to the hospital for a panic attack that he thought was a heart attack, The doctors told him he wasn't going to die, and he realized he was disappointed. And something about that moment was a wake-up call for him. Because he knew, because of his beliefs, because of his theology, that the gift of life that God gave him was not something that he should throw away. So he decided to come out. He quit his job first. He's such a kind guy. If you have a chance to listen to the story, he said, I wanted to spare the college, the drama, and the media circus. And truthfully, of course, he said, spare myself some of that, too. And so here he was, out in the world, having let go of everything that had defined his life. And he started meeting men. He started going on dates. You know, if he came out, he might as well get something out of this deal, right? And right away, he met someone. He met a man who was in this country from New Zealand, here because his sister lived here, and his sister was dying of cancer. They went out on a few dates, nothing too serious, lunch. But then after one of their dates, they made out. He said, it was my first time kissing a man, 38 years old. And the next morning, he got a phone call from this guy, but it wasn't the kind of phone call he was hoping for. He called him and said, my sister has gotten much worse. I think it's close to the end for her. And she is Christian, and I know that you are a pastor, and I'm wondering if you will come and pray with her. And J.J. said, I don't do that anymore. He thought that he had to let go of everything in his old life with this change. He knew that all the work that he'd done all those years, the mission trips, his degrees after degree, the devotion of his life to helping all those young people have an impact on the world, to forming good Christian citizens and soldiers. He knew that part of why he'd done all that was because he was trying to prove his worth, prove his worth to God. And he knew that it didn't work. But he got convinced to go. I guess that guy was a good kisser, huh? (laughs) He dragged his feet the whole way, got to the hospital, went to the room, and he said, I talked to everybody else in the room besides this guy's sister. I talked to the guy. I talked to his parents. I talked to the nurses. I asked about her condition. I avoided her like the plague. 
except she figured out why he was there, that he was a pastor. And she started to remove the oxygen tubes from her nose, the oxygen tubes that were keeping her alive. The nurses had told him that if her oxygen levels dropped below a certain point, that they were going to intubate her and put her on a breathing machine. And she had signed a do not resuscitate order. So if that happened, that would be the beginning of the end. She took those tubes out of her nose because she needed to talk to him. She raised her voice and said, I need to talk to you about God. I need to tell you about my life, and I need to know that I'm going to be all right with God before I go. And her breathing got shallower and shallower. She got more and more anxious, and that oxygen meter dropped and dropped. And so he took her hand. He sat down next to her. And he said, I started reciting every verse and blessing that I knew about peace. Every quote, every prayer I could remember. And as I talked about the peace of God and shalom peace and the peace that is God's wish for all of us in life and in death, she began to calm. Her oxygen levels rose. Her heart rate slowed. And he prayed with her, finally, that she would find the kind of peace that she had been craving. She thanked him. J.J., as he told this story, said, you know, I'm a bit of a mystic. I believe sometimes that things aren't just coincidences. And he said, I I think God put that situation in my life the next morning, right? The next morning, right after I kissed that guy and thought, I'm done. It's over for me. All this good stuff in my life, my calling, everything I've devoted my heart to, all bankrupt. Because I can't be what those other folks told me I need to be. And he said, the next morning, God said, no. I don't think so. I'm putting you back in there. He said, I thought of Peter standing on the shore with Jesus in the New Testament. That story of Peter who had denied knowing Jesus, who had betrayed Jesus three times. Standing on the shore, Peter and Jesus. And Peter is going, I screwed up so badly, Jesus. I'm sorry. And Jesus says, "Eh, do you love me? Oh, yes. But but I really... Do you love me? Yeah, but I I kissed a guy and no, 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 no. Listen, do you love me? With all my heart. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep and my flock. Do what you were put here to do. The gifts that JJ had to offer the world who he was called to be stayed. They weren't worthless just because he didn't measure up to someone else's hopes or plans for him. In fact, being all of who he was, being seen through the seismic changes of accepting a truth that had shadowed his entire life, being seen in that moment became the most profound experience of grace and love that he had ever known. What stayed 
for him took the place of and transformed all those unmet plans and hopes and expectations that just weren't real, that he could let fall away. When Ken was up here before, he talked about a couple failures. And as I think I've referenced up here before, I'm, I'm the optimist in the co-ministry relationship. And I'm very tempted to list all our accomplishments over the last 10 years, things that I had nothing to do with, things that were true before I ever arrived. Honestly, to give you all some credit, a lot of credit, because we exist because of all of you. I won't do that too much, but I will tell you that when I look back at all that old stuff, all those old materials, the hopes for who we would be, tucked in there somewhere was a report from about six months in, a report to the Chalice Lighters program, which supplied some of our funding when we got started. You can actually learn more about them at the table near the cake in the back. We told them how things were going. We had 39 members then, so our attendance was actually better than our membership can pretty good. We have 277 members now. Back then, six months in, we had 24 people who were involved in our springboards, our small groups for spiritual growth. And last year, we had 181 people involved in those small groups. That doesn't even count retreats or mindful recovery that meets on Tuesday night. But then I read some other things from our baby book. The hopes that people had for us that were maybe a little bit more about them. The new congregation task force of the Philadelphia Wilmington Metro Plan will establish a large full-service UU congregation for people living in the developing area of north central Chester County. We're doing okay so far, right? Yeah. After an organizational period of about one year, the founding membership will consist of a minimum of 300 people. (laughs) This one I also like. Looking to the future, the Chester County Unitarian Universalist Real Estate Trust is being formed with an eye towards purchasing and holding land for the future new church. Really? Does anyone have their phone number? I would love to talk to them, actually. Yeah, that didn't happen either. And I see things like this. This was actually my favorite thing I found. Somewhere in this timeline of process of stuff we were going to do, we were going to have a chat room on the web, you guys. <laughs> we could still do this. There's still time, right? If anyone has one of those AOL free 300-hour CDs <laughs> that I used to get when I was a kid, we could set up a chat room. Now, of course, right, the chat room may have really mattered to someone back then. And it's also so clear as we look back that it isn't what matters now. This is sort of like, you know, the parent that says, well, we got to make sure that Johnny gets started on violin lessons by the time he's three or so, so that will support his math skills when he gets into school, right? I mean, maybe, sure. But is that what really matters? Of course not. What matters is that Johnny knows he is loved. What matters is that Johnny knows he had people who cared about him enough that they were planning his violin lessons right before he was born. When we create new life, 
We create it out of the hope for the good that new life can bring. It doesn't matter how productive or successful that new life is. When we create it out of that good place, that hope for the good that new life can bring will be what stays. And I see how much hope is here for us and has always been here for us. I wasn't there, but I can see it when I talk to the people who were here in our first two years, when I talk to the people who got together with Reverend Ken for 18 months before January 21st, 2007, to make sure that they had something to give. That we could be intentional in the expression of this community, that the good things that they brought would overflow from the good they'd already shared with each other. And I see it even back in some of those words that we inherited before any of this was here. Because in that packet of information were also things like this. You will possess such a deep and abiding sense of the good news of Unitarian Universalism that you will be unafraid to go door to door to spread the word, to talk to your neighbors and your friends. You will engage in public witness on behalf of our faith willing to embody and envision a new paradigm that leads you to embrace ideas and methods that go beyond the customary limits of our denomination. And I like this one. The worst mistake your new minister could make would be to allow her or himself or the congregation to settle down into comfort before this new community realizes its full potential. I think we batted a thousand on that one. Because there was love and energy and faith at our start, that has been what stayed. May we carry that forward as a gift. Happy birthday. Amen, and may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Will you pray with me? God of all that is unknown, the future that's laid out before us, some of which has already been set in motion, but not in ways that we can predict. Today I feel gratitude for the uncertainty. Today I hope that we remember that we can feel gratitude for the uncertainty because that is what animates our lives and keeps us alive, being willing to be surprised, being willing to accept that there may be good things coming, even if we can't see them, trusting that hope is a reasonable response to our world and the faith that it takes to believe that some days. I'm grateful for the places that I have in my life and that all these people have in their lives that cultivate that hope. May we keep them strong. For these prayers that I have spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their hearts today, we say amen.